Welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Meet them, greet them, treat them, and street them. Today's date is January 23rd, 2023, and I am your skeptical host, Ken Milne. The title of today's podcast is You Don't Own Me, Post-Row Emergency Medicine. And this is an SGEM Extra episode. The ruling of the U.S. Supreme Court on June 24th, 2022 in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization overturned Roe v. Wade and allowed individual U.S. states to determine their own restrictions on abortion. Now, there was a recent tweet about allyship and advocacy by an orthopedic surgeon, Dr. Simon Fleming, and he encouraged people to shut up and listen, and to amplify other voices and transfer your privileges. So I heard you, Simon. I'm listening. And I interpreted that to mean, at times, men should talk less and listen more. And I think this is one of those times. So Dr. Kirsty Chaon will be hosting this SGEM Extra episode. Kirsty, Thanks, Ken. And thanks to the SGEM for the opportunity to talk about this highly important issue. Academic Emergency Medicine published a special contribution in December 2022, exploring the implications of this for providers of emergency healthcare. We're recording one day after the 50th anniversary of the original Roe v. Wade decision on January the 22nd, 1973. Although the SGEM is based in Canada, and I'm British, we felt this was an issue of such importance, we wanted to invite the authors to discuss it further with us. So our guest sceptic today is Dr. Michelle Lynn, an emergency physician and health services researcher from Stanford, whose goal is to transform acute care delivery to best meet the needs of those who experience the greatest barriers to accessing healthcare. Welcome to the SGEM, Michelle. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so pleased to be here. Thank you for coming. Before we get into the questions with Michelle, a bit of a trigger warning. To those listening to the podcast or reading the blog post, there may be some things discussed about abortion that could be upsetting. The SGEM's free, open access, trying to cut the knowledge translation gap down to less than a year. It's intended for clinicians providing care to emergency patients, so they get the best care based on the best evidence. Some of the abortion material we're going to be talking about could trigger some strong emotions. So if you're feeling upset by the content, please stop listening. And there will be resources listed at the end of the blog for those looking for assistance. So Michelle, we've read your paper in academic emergency medicine, but why does EM need to know about this? After all, we aren't abortion providers, are we? We're not even OBGYNs. Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, And I think that uh, it really refers to three populations. I think the emergency department is a place where women uh, come in and get diagnosed with early pregnancy loss. Uh, There are over 900,000 visits for that in the U.S. every year. Second, there's the population with ectopic pregnancies, and probably an emergency department is one of the more common places where these diagnoses, which are, as, as we all know, are quite life-threatening, are diagnosed. And then the third population is that 
many patients who've had a medical or procedural abortion may seek care in the emergency department. And so I think that these are patients who we do, in fact, see. For many of these patients, we are their first point of contact. Often, a woman doesn't have her first prenatal visit until weeks 8, 9, or 10 and may not have had a confirmed intrauterine pregnancy. And so if she has a symptom such as vaginal bleeding, the emergency department is often where she seeks care. Sure. So as Ken often says, the ED is the one room in the house of medicine where the light is always on. That's right. And we are always there. That's right. Cool. So you talked in the paper about the unequal implications of this decision, but surely the law is the law everywhere. So can you tell us more about the inequalities? Of course. Um, So I think this is on two levels. Um, One is um, at the state level, and the other is that it impacts different parts of the population differently. Um, So essentially, with the overruling of the Roe v. Wade decision, Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization essentially said that laws governing abortion care would not be at the federal level and that they would instead be at the state level. And as a result, 26 states out of the 50 now have laws restricting access to abortion in some capacity. Um, so that affects uh, you know, more than half of the United States. So, And there's even a lot of variation between these states with respect to the degree to which they restrict abortion access, depending on gestational stage and the types of exceptions that would be allowed. You know, And the common ones include fatal fetal abnormalities you know, where the life of the mother or birthing person is imperiled, and ectopic pregnancy. But in some states, these are written explicitly into the law, and in some, they are not. There's even differences with respect to the burden of the treating clinician to prove that the pregnancy was, you know, inevitably ending in demise. Um, And I think that that's where a lot of the concern among the medical community is rising. The other aspect in which um, this isn't impacting all people who can give birth equally is that there are known disparities in access to reproductive health care. We speak about the concept of reproductive justice, and I don't think I'm going to be able to explain it fully on this episode, um, but it really refers to the fact that there is unequal access to reproductive health care among people of different races, ethnicities, gender identities, sexual orientations depending on um, political status, geography, and culture. And we are experiencing a crisis of Black maternal morbidity and mortality in this country. So on the one hand, you know, you are restricting people to have a pregnancy and eventual birth that uh, they may be at increased risk of complications for. And so uh, we know that this will be exacerbated um, in certain racial and ethnic minority populations. Okay, so unless and until there's a a level playing field in healthcare for women or anyone who can be pregnant to choose whether or not to be pregnant and until it's equally safe for anyone to continue with the pregnancy, restricting abortion options will disproportionately affect some people. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think the effects even go farther. I think, you know, I think there's very good evidence from economics that women who are not able to get abortions have higher odds of subsequent poverty, um, are less likely to have full-time work, um, are more likely to require public assistance. Um, So I think that those effects really accumulate in society. Thank you. Now, I know you're not a lawyer, but could you give us some idea of the legal implications for emergency physicians caring for patients who may be miscarrying spontaneously or have an ectopic pregnancy or present with the complications of an abortion which is illegal in that state? Yeah. Um, so I, the first thing I would say is to know the law in your state uh, because there is so much variation. Um, so to be very, very familiar, not just with the law, but also on your hospital's policy with respect to early pregnancy complications. And I think that there's an incredible amount of balance and I think nuance that needs to occur. And I think we're already seeing guidance with respect to documentation um, and how that should be carried out in these cases you know, and, um, you know, really relying on the fact that um, because the emergency department is a place where we are federally mandated to provide care, that that supersedes the state abortion restrictions and and making sure that our duty is to the patient in front of us. Yeah, that makes sense to find out the, the specifics of where you're working. You mention something specifically about documentation in these circumstances. Can you explore that a bit further for us? Yeah, of course. You know, again, uh, I'm not a lawyer and I'm not able to provide legal advice, but there have been suggestions from some groups that perhaps the documentation in these cases of early pregnancy complications um, should be similar to uh, the documentation that we provide in cases where patients are using illicit substances or cases where patients have reported sexual assault uh, to be, you know, somewhat limited in scope because there is concern that your medical chart could be used in a subsequent legal proceeding. And, uh, you know, I think the desire is to be as protective as possible of patients. And so, you know, saying something as vague as patient believes she was pregnant and is now bleeding um, and and almost stopping there with respect to the subjective part of the uh, note. That must be quite challenging for all of us who are used to documenting everything in detail for other medico-legal reasons. Yeah. One of the things you also mentioned in your paper was that this isn't just about our patients, this is about us the pregnant or potentially pregnant emergency physician, is is this going to impact on us as a workforce as well? Yeah, I think that that's something that we have to think about. You know, one in eight women in the general population experience infertility, but among women physicians, I think that number is higher. It's as high as one in four women physicians. And so often, uh, you know, uh, women who have infertility seek IVF and other forms of reproductive assistance. And there's concern among the reproductive endocrinology community that IVF will be impacted as well, uh, depending on how certain states interpret that law um, and how aggressive they are with that interpretation. So I think that's one way in which it'll impact us. I think a second um, consideration is with respect to employer benefits. In the U.S., people mostly receive their health insurance through their employer, um, which is not as common in other countries. And I would say, you know, 
all employed emergency physicians probably receive their uh, health benefits that way. And so um, employers in certain states in which there are abortion restrictions may not be obligated to provide coverage for termination services, whether medical or procedural, and may or may not offer travel compensation for patients who need to go to other states. And this is inclusive of, you know, conference travel, for example, for people who may be traveling somewhere uh, and happen to be pregnant. And so I think there are things that we have to think about with respect to our own reproductive autonomy. Wow. So the implications go far beyond the patient community. You did mention that in the paper that one of the policy actions for emergency physicians could be to use EMTALA to preempt state restrictions. For those of us who don't work in the US and maybe don't understand the EMTALA system quite as well, could you explain how that would work practically? Yeah, and I think we're seeing some, um, you know, response from the federal administration with respect to this already. Um, but EMTALA is basically a law that was passed in Congress in the 80s to require that um, hospitals receiving payment from Medicare, which is our, you know, the biggest federal payer, be required to provide care regardless of a patient's ability to pay. And so um, that's sort of the underpinning of the emergency department as the safety net in our country. And um, shortly after the repeal of Roe v. Wade, uh, the Biden administration did issue a rule um, saying that EMTALA supersedes um, state abortion restrictions with the, uh, you know, particular emphasis on potential ectopic pregnancy presentations to the emergency department. And I think the thought was uh, that there are a subset of states that actually allow for civil and potentially criminal prosecutions of persons who aid or abet an abortion, and that EMTALA is still valid in those states. And um, I think that that regulation sought to establish that healthcare providers um, have protection when they are providing care for a patient who presents the ED. I see. So the emergency treatments aspect of the EMTALA would override local regulation preventing a particular treatment? Well, not necessarily. It would it would allow us to treat the patient, you know, and stabilize them. But with respect to definitive care, I think that that remains, you know, an open question. I think, uh, you know, again, it is often now uh, the responsibility of the clinician to document that the patient's life is at threat um, if they end up requiring a termination in those cases. And so I think, you know, EMTALA has helped with these emergency cases where patients are presenting to the ED, but it does little to nothing uh, for patients who desire care in an outpatient setting. That sounds a very challenging environment to be working in right now for you. Thank you for all the information you've given us about this. Is there anything else you'd like to say you'd like our listeners to hear about this issue? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, I think that this is a really different era for emergency medicine, not just clinical practice, but also training. And I think we're increasingly seeing, particularly among residents and medical students who are entering emergency medicine, a, a desire to be more educated with respect to administering medication abortions because we know that the emergency department is the front line. And so I think that it will be interesting for the ACGME, which is our residency accrediting body, to consider 
how these new needs for our patients are taken into account with respect to education and training. And then also for, you know, the organizations that we worked for to think about how to best support, you know, people of reproductive potential uh, who may be trainees, faculty, et cetera, and how our needs can be best paired for as well. So I think it really um, impacts us on multiple fronts. A hugely important issue. Thank you, Michelle, for coming on the SGEM to share that with our listeners. The SGEM will be back next episode doing a structured critical appraisal of a recent publication, trying to cut the knowledge translation window down from over 10 years to less than one year using the power of social media so that patients get the best care based on the best evidence. But for now, Michelle, could you give us the SGEM tagline? Remember to be skeptical of anything you learn, even if you heard it on the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Thanks so much for having me.